The Kakadu Plum is an Australian native superfood containing 100 times more vitamin C than oranges. So why have you never heard of it? PR. No one's drinking a Kakadu smoothie? I'm JB Smooth, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a gagillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit att.com slash hypergig for details. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. You're a growing business, which means you need every spare hour you can find. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Too Much Information is a production of iHeartRadio. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Too Much Information, the show that brings you the secret histories and little-known facts and figures behind your favorite movies, music, TV shows, and more. We are you two boss men of banality. I'm Alex Heigl. And I'm Jordan Runtalk. And Jordan, today we are talking about one of the towering achievements of mid-century American cinema, a film that still holds a 100% on Rotten Tomato, a film that answers the question, as one Twitter user dared to put it, what if the hottest dude ever went to prison? <laughs> That's right, folks. We're talking about Cool Hand Luke. Before we even get into it, I just want to add this anecdote that Paul Newman, uh, it's from his biography uh, about women just throwing themselves at him. He was at a charity event where uh, he was ladling punch out and a, a woman asked if he could uh, stir the punch in her cup with his finger, to which he responded, I'd be glad to, but I just took it out of a cyanide bottle. <laughs> Greatest American man. I know. I Man, God, I love him so much. For someone who really could have just become like an out of control, like raging monster. With all of his considerable gifts and charisma at his command, he was like, nope, I love my wife and salad and <laughs> racing and I'm and just beer. a chill, cool dude. And be, oh yeah, he loved beer. Did I put that in later on? Ethan Hawke said he would, he, when he, when Joanne Woodward kicked him out and their compromise was that he stopped drinking liquor, but he would still go through like a case of beer at dinner. The case? <laughs> Man. Yeah. Damn. <laughs> Uh, I think I saw Cool Hand Luke when I was a kid because it's pretty, minus the spoiler alert, dying. It's pretty kid friendly and the boobs. It's pretty kid friendly. As with every dad in the world, he loved the failure to communicate line. But it was also one of the few like capital F films that I've backed to again and again uh, in between the rest of my youth, which was spent mainlining John Carpenter and Jackie Chan. <laughs> it is a perfect film. It's just a perfect film, full stop. If you, if you, if there are people out there who like, I don't like Cool Hand Luke. It's like the Thin Lizzy bumper sticker. It says, if you don't like Thin Lizzy, f 
you. If you don't like Cool Hand Luke, that is not a reflection of the film. It is a reflection on your moral failing as a person. Um, the line when when they when he says uh, when they ask him why he's cutting the heads off parking meters, and he goes, "Ah, small town, not much to do in the evenings." Still one of my go tos. Just a perfect movie. Jordan, go <laughs> talk about how hot Paul Newman is. Yeah, I mean, this movie looms large for me, uh, has direct main line to my heart. Uh, what is it about Paul Newman and dads? Like, oh, well, this and yeah. Rocky I mean, are two movies that just have the capacity to make men of a certain age weep. And, you know, I guess it makes sense because both of these movies, Rocky and Cool Hand Luke, add a sense of dignity to men being beaten down by forces <laughs> bigger than them. Rocky mm-hmm. by Apollo Creed and Luke by Dragline during that famous fight scene. Uh, Paul Newman's character is repeatedly getting hit by this behemoth of a man over and over in a scene that goes on for a truly uncomfortably long length of time. He could barely stand and even the man beating Luke is telling him just to stay down. And Newman says what I think is the crucial line of the movie. You'll have to kill me. And, you know, I'm almost embarrassed to say this. I think about that line a lot in times of trouble in my life. Like, you know, you'll have to kill me first. Uh, In Rocky and in Cool Hand Luke, neither man buckles. They both go the distance, at least according to their own moral code. Uh, There's a triumph in just surviving, which is maybe why both of these films strike straight at the heart of I'll say anybody. I mean, you know, insert cliche about the durability of the human spirit here. Newman has this in a lot of his movies, actually, or at least the ones that I've seen that have stuck with me. Uh, he's a dreamer that doesn't have a chance. You know, he, and he's in The Hustler. He's in The Sting, and especially in Butch Cassidy and The Sundance Kid. He brings this sense of tragic optimism in the face of odds that we, the audience, know are absolutely crushing. And you know he must know it, too. Mm-hmm. And I think that gives this movie and so many of Paul Newman's other movies this poignancy. And that fight scene is the first thing I think of when I think of this movie. Um, and, of course, the poker scene where he gets his nickname because he bluffs his way to winning. Because, you know, sometimes you can just beat him with nothing. Nothing is a pretty cool hand. Like earlier today when he kept coming back at me <laughs> with nothing. <laughs> That's a good George Kennedy. George Kennedy is so funny in this movie. He's he's playing this buffoon. And in all of the interviews, he's so soft-spoken and erudite. Yes, yeah, very uh, much so. But in answer to your question, I would go... I, you know, you didn't ask me a question. You just told me to go. <laughs> but uh, in answer to the prompt, wasn't Paul Newman hot? <laughs> I have this but, to say. But yeah, I... um. I didn't, I didn't watch this with my dad, actually. I Every Friday as a kid, I used to go to the video store and get mm-hmm. three movies for three days for $3. Ooh. And as part of my ongoing campaign to live life like it was the mid-60s, I would always rent these old classic movies that were way too mature for me. And I would watch them usually by myself. On this one, my dad somehow intimated that Cool Hand Luke was a truly good movie. Like, you know, one that meant a lot to him, which was rare coming from him. So that marked it as special to me before I'd ever seen it. And then uh, when I watched it, of course, that just sealed it. I just think it was, you know, as you said, a truly great movie. Um, I think I watched it the same weekend that I first saw Midnight Cowboy. I think I watched them back to back. Uh, and I just remember being bummed out that whole weekend. <laughs> I actually anyway. haven't seen this movie in a very long time, but you you were saying you saw it recently? Oh, yeah. 
Uh, I watched it on my birthday because um, oh. it is one of my favorite films. It's like a top five for me for sure. Probably the only film with any dignity that's actually on my top five. <laughs> the other ones are like John Carpenter movies and again, Jackie Chan, as I mentioned. Um, you know, I draw a lot of parallels between Jackie Chan and, and Luke. They're both men who have to triumph against insurmountable odds with a high degree of physical comedy. Uh <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm trying to make that work as the words came out of my mouth and my brain was going, stop. Yeah, so I watched this with my wife and we had watched it before at some point during the pandemic, but she watched it this time and with the credits roll, that end, that famous shot, she just bursts into tears and she goes, they killed him for being different. And it's so, I'm getting like choked up thinking about it now because that seems like an oversimplification of this movie's themes of which it is not subtle about, but it is still a movie that hits you every time the same way and you can be a child or mm. a, a grown adult and you can still see it and be affected by it the same way and it still hits the same every time. And we don't get very many works of art like that. You know, wow, you can see this movie point, yeah. as a kid and as an adult and you still get every element of it. Just, you know, people are like, oh, it hits different. Nope. It hits the same. It's a hundred percent. It's a home run. No notes. <laughs> so from the hard boiled ex sailor turned safe cracker who wrote the source material, to the woman behind to the hard boiled eggs, <laughs> to the hard boiled eggs. How did you miss that? I did. Damn it. Here's everything you didn't know about cool hand. Luke. Cool hand. Donald. The man doesn't have quite the same ring to it. The man who wrote the novel cool hand. Luke was a guy named Don Pierce, Pennsylvania boy, Keystone state. Uh, <laughs> He was born in 1928 in the Philadelphia suburb of Croydon, just on the other side of the New Jersey border. His parents split when he was 11, but he was a sharp kid. Valedictorian of his grammar school in New York. He attended the elite Brooklyn Technical oh, wow. School for two years, won $10 in a writing contest in high school. Dropped out of school at 15, though, and proceeded to have one of those truly bananas mid-century American man lives that, uh, well, stuff of novels are made of. He attempted to join the Merchant Marine, was turned away for being too young, and was accepted into the army instead. <laughs> <laughs> you can't make money, but you can die for us. That's fine. I mean, this is a, Jordan, this is, a, this is during 1944. It was a little thing called WW2. <laughs> the big they one. Needed, the big one meant they needed... Uh, they needed anybody. <laughs> they got a 15-year-old Donald Pierce, who subsequently went AWOL, not so much because he was scared, he said, but because he didn't like all the rules... And he was sentenced to 30 days in the stockade. They sent him to the box. Well, but then they immediately let him out. <laughs> they were like, they were like, we're shipping you off. Uh, because again, WW2. And then he wrote his mom and she subsequently, he essentially, he essentially snitched on himself. He wrote his mom who wrote the army and was like, my kid's, you know, 15. You can't send him to the Battle of the Bulge. Uh, he was charged with false enlistment, but he was released. He said he did later regret it. He regretted feeling like a coward over it, um, which I don't know, dude. Uh, now of age, he joined the Merchant Marine. Uh, timeline is a little fuzzy here. There's some of the better interviews with him go to like dead regional Florida newspaper links. But from what I was able to glean at some point in Venice, he fell in love with a pregnant Italian newspaper reporter 
but was not allowed to marry her because he wasn't 18. And then in France, he got involved with the thriving post-World War II black market there and was jailed for selling counterfeit currency to an undercover cop. Supposedly, he escaped, made his way to Italy, forged his papers to get back across the Atlantic, and got back into the U.S. via Canada. At which point, he joins up with a safecracker named Donald Graham Garrison and attempted to make a go of things as a burglar, <coughs> a thief, a brigand. No, brigands rob people face to face. But by his own account, he was not very good at it. Um, he appeared, <laughs> there's a really funny episode of the 1966 game show, uh, To Tell the Truth. Are you familiar with that? Oh, Is that yeah. in your whole? Yeah, I thought so. Jordan, what's To Tell the Truth? Uh, it's a show that would make zero dollars today. They have somebody with an <laughs> inc- insanely specific life story like this guy, and they bring on the real guy and then two people pretending to be that guy, and then a panel of guests just ask them questions and try to judge which one of them is telling the truth. And at the end of the episode, they vote on which one is the real, you know, the, 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 the Eminem line, will the real so-and-so please stand up is from that show. Holy shit. I never put that together. Yeah. Yeah. Huh? Uh, well, he said during his part of his panel appearance on that, he said, I always seem to pick the wrong safes. And most often I found nothing but love letters and old sandwiches incredible image that's up there with a fisherman pulling up an old tire out of the water that's great (laughs) yeah so pierce went to prison for attempting to rob a movie theater in florida uh i have heard two different versions of this one is that he was either dating this woman and told her that uh he was going to do it and she was in the process of getting divorced from her husband who is a cop and she told her soon-to-be ex-husband and that set him up or he was just hating on her, essentially. He was like, yeah, I'm going to knock over this movie theater. And she told her ex-husband who was a cop. End result was still the same. <laughs> yes, Pierce was sentenced to five years in 1949 and spent the first year working in the print shop at the Florida State Penitentiary at Rayford. And then he was sent to road camp number 48 in Tavares Lake County. That's how you say that, right? I think so. Tavares, yeah. Uh, an experience he described as, quote, a chamber of horrors. And yeah, that sounds about right. <laughs> Many of the details from Cool Hand Luke, uh, like the box, the leg shackles, and the dog man were drawn from his experience there, as was the climax of the movie, unfortunately. Uh, mm. In 2017, the Florida paper, The Daily Commercial, unearthed through court records an August 1949 coroner's jury inquest into the shooting death of an escaped convict, 22-year-old Luther Catrett. Catchard had been sentenced to three years for unarmed robbery, but he bolted from a brush-cutting roadside work detail on on Interstate 441 between Silver Lake Forks and Leesburg Airport at 11 a.m. one day with another convict. Gotta love bureaucracy that they just drilled down into all these details, and now, 55 years later, we can be like, we know where the actual Cool Hand Luke was uh, fleeing from and subsequently shot to death. Yes, a hunt by guards and the camp's dog boys immediately started up, and uh, prison captain W.P. Allison testified, we ran him until 6.30 and lost the trail. It rained on us. <laughs> Ugh. Uh, but by about 10 p.m., guards and their dogs uh, had tracked the men to an African-American church near Lisbon, and a guard named A.R. Hampton testified that they found one man laying on the floor And the other got up with an organ stool or piano stool or some kind of a stool in his hand and was standing up with it and said some curse word about getting the light out of his eyes. 
and he flinched with the stool like he was going to throw it at somebody, throw it through the window at us, and that was when I shot him. He shot a man armed with a church organ stool. That is gothic. Ah, Florida, baby. Uh, Yeah, it's basically the last scene of the film, except instead of taunting, the man just stood up and held a stool. Don Pierce told the Sun Sentinel in 2012 uh, that I never knew Luke. He was a legendary con famous for escaping. I did know the walking boss who shot him. I put all these stories together. I mixed legends and used myself as a model. The real Luke never bet the guards he could eat 50 hard-boiled eggs. That was me. They called off the bet after they saw how much I could eat. Pierce did allow that the real Luke was quite a banjo player and got his nickname from his poker-playing abilities. Uh, It has frequently been repeated. Uh, You can still find it out there that uh, that guy... Don Graham Garrison, who is Pierce's safe-cracking buddy, was the inspiration for the character. That is incorrect, as we have just proved with official Florida state court records. But that actually might come from Garrison simply saying that it was, which, gotta respect the the hustle there. Um, Don Pierce was sufficiently annoyed by the fact that Garrison did this to debunk the claim in an article in the Fort Lauderdale News that I turned up. Um, he basically just claimed that uh, he visited Garrison in jail after the film came out, told him about the movie, and when Garrison got out, he started being like, oh, yeah, that uh, movie was cool me. Luke. Yeah, it's based on me. Again, respect the hustle. Yeah. So once Pierce got out of prison, he zeroed in on his ambition to write. Honed, he said, by a Proust reading Stanford grad, he met at Tavares. And uh, when he got out of the prison camp after two years, he made another go with the Merchant Marines and started writing while on these voyages, saving all his money from that work and moving eventually to New York City. After living there for a few years, he got into a motorcycle accident, which took him two years to recover from. And in 1959, he was on his way to the movie theater on crutches when a girl walked towards him carrying a radio, which was playing Johnny Horton's Battle of New Orleans with its chorus about the British on the run from Andrew Jackson's frontier soldiers. And Pierce later said, when you get ideas, they generally come in little flakes like the grains of sand in an oyster. That's good. Cool Hand Luke, though, (laughs) came so hard and fast. I had to stop up my crutches and lean against the fence. I was laughing so hard. That was Luke, like the British in the song. He kept on running and no one could catch him. He was a superhero. Over the next few days, the rest came to be in great big chunks. I always likened it to making scrambled eggs. You get different spots that (laughs) that harden first. My analogy's better. Uh, this was something like his, I've heard fifth, I've heard seventh finished novel, uh, rejected 16 times before Scribner picked it up. Apparently only because an editor had taken the manuscript home and his wife read it and liked it. That's a listicle right there. Famous stuff that got made because the producer's spouse liked it. I feel like we've (laughs) had a bunch of examples of that on here. Wasn't Will Smith cast in Men in Black because the producer's wife liked him? Yeah, 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 yeah. She was a, I think she was because she was a Fresh Prince fan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, the novel was published in 1965. Sold uh 1,100 copies. Wow, not great. I have never read it. Have you? I've never even heard of it until this episode. Yeah, I had no idea that it yeah. was a novel until this. Uh, Pierce struggled as a writer after the book was adapted. He published uh, some articles in Playboy and Esquire. He has other novels. He has an expose about the nursing home industry in Florida called Dying in the Sun, which I feel like I have to read (laughs) 
After that came out in 73, he pivoted to his latter-day career as a bounty hunter, an investigator bondsman. Uh, although he disliked using that term, he preferred the term skip man. Skip man. <laughs> What's the derivation of that as a bounty hunter? I, I guess when they skip, hunter. skip, oh, they skip out skip on... Ta- oh, yeah. I like that. Okay. Yeah. Uh, he died in 2017 at the age of 88, 12 years after furnishing this incredible quote to the Florida Sun Sentinel. The world really isn't evil. It's just dumb. There's no cure for dumb. Dumb will outsmart you. I sent that to a few people after reading that in the sat line. <laughs> I was going to say, man, that's a hell of a quote to go out on. Don Pierce, we hardly knew ye. Uh, director Stuart Rosenberg, who had been kicking around television for the previous decade, discovered Pierce's novel, brought it to Jack Lemon's Jalem Productions. Rosenberg would later tell the New York Times of the novel, it was the first time I had come across an existentialist hero, not an anti-hero, in American literature. Hmm. Here was a man not so much a rebel as a nonconformist, a man who didn't belong, committed to no external idea but to himself, and desperately concerned to express that commitment. Uh, to their credit, production's credit, they hired Pierce for the screenplay, although he had zero experience writing screenplays, and so it was quite understandable when they saw his draft and brought in another guy named Frank R. Pearson to rewrite it. And yeah, as we'll talk about, Don Pierce was not exactly complimentary about the film adaptation of his book. No, sir. (laughs) From soup to nuts, he hated it. Uh, Where does that phrase come from? Ah, Yeah, I looked that up recently. That's an old... Oh, really? uh, Yeah, it's just the way that meals used to be parsed out. First course would be soup, and then they'd bring you nuts as the last course, yeah. Huh. Uh, Pearson was a Harvard grad who'd been a reporter for Time Magazine and a story editor for TV. Uh, his most famous screenplay prior to this was 1965's Western parody Cat Baloo. A movie famously Baloo? hated by the Beatles. I think it's Cat Baloo, yeah. Pearson would go on to pick up an Oscar for Dog Day Afternoon and <laughs> a movie I cannot <laughs> reference without <laughs> the It's Always Sunny episode where Charlie is running around in the street <laughs> trying to reference the Attica scene and instead is yelling Gattaca. (laughs) (laughs) Never not going to be hilarious to me. Gattaca! Gattaca! (laughs) Um, He would also direct the 1976 version of A Star is Born. Pearson's contributions were ramping up the religious themes present in the story, perhaps to an unsubtle degree if we were being charitable. Uh, and contributing Strother Martin's iconic failure to communicate line as the camp captain, which uh, Pierce famously derided as stupid, <laughs> saying that the overseers at his camp were not that eloquent. Probably fair. Axel Rose disagreed and has used a sample of that in not one, but two separate Guns N' Roses songs a decade and change apart. One on uh, Civil War from the not Appetite for Destruction <laughs> Guns N' Roses record. And uh, Chinese democracy. It's either lies or spaghetti incident or something. It's a civil war. We don't need no civil war. I can't do the break. We don't need no civil war. It's <laughs> really the only good part of my axles. obnoxious <laughs> screech he does. Pearson said in a Writer's Guild of America interview, the phrase just sort of appeared on the page. I looked at it and thought, now that's interesting. Then I thought, these words are going to be spoken by an actor who is playing a real redneck character who probably never went beyond high school, and it has a faintly academic feel to it, that line. I thought, P- 
people are going to question it. So to that end, he wrote an entire biography for the captain, uh, who's played by Strother Martin, as we mentioned, a man George Kennedy described as both an actor's actor and a bit cuckoo for real. He was also in Butch and Sundance with Paul Newman. And he sings a song that sounds a lot like Plastic Jesus right before his character gets shot. In Pearson's bio, the captain started out as an ordinary guard in the prison system, but in order to advance to a higher grade, he was required to do a certain amount of study and take courses in criminology. So he was actually exposed to an academic atmosphere, which would justify him using that language. After all that, though, nobody questioned the line, and those details were never used. The Production Code Authority, which was established in 1934 to enforce quote-unquote decency in films, if you've heard of the Hayes Code, that is the Production Code Authority, uh, they were sent the script, and they were not thrilled. They wrote in a memo to the production that there is entirely too much profanity for us to begin to consider approving the script, including by actual count four instances of son of a bitch, six instances of damn, eight instances of bastard, 32 incidences of damn, 39 incidences of hell, and other assorted expressions such as grab ass, wise ass, smart ass, raggedy ass, shove it, and bitched up. That one, I've never heard of that one. I don't think that even appears in the film, though. Uh, There were several sequences which, as presently described, appear to us to be unacceptably brutal, savage, and sadistic. But the Hays Code was on its way out by 1967. Uh, All the teeth had gone out of it. Standards were changing. So, sorry, guys. Tough. (laughs) Yeah. Suck it, nerds. Conrad Hall, who would go on to scoop up three Oscars and three BAFTAs for a career included... In Cold Blood, Butch Cassidy, American Beauty, and Road to Perdition was hired as the film's cinematographer. He would later recall that he had to shoot one scene five times because executives at Warner Brothers who were distributing the film complained that Newman's famous blue eyes were not coming through prominently enough in the dailies. You gotta do the cigar chopping executive. (laughs) I want to see those baby blues six feet tall on a big screen. Azure blue like a summer day on the sea. Cerulean, even. (laughs) (laughs) Making a necessary impression here, boss. (laughs) Inserting a recurring bit here, boss. Insert a recurring bit there, Luke. Uh, A note on Newman's famous baby blues. In the book, Paul Newman, The Extraordinary Life of an Ordinary Man, uh, which is, I believe, called from like an oral history interview that he did. It's all like transcripts of him talking. Um, Is that the new one? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, he, he said that, um, he was conflicted about getting noticed for them. He said, you work what you consider pretty hard at your craft and you're getting to the point where you're just starting to feel kind of good about yourself. And then somebody says, Oh God, take off your sunglasses so I can see your baby blue eyes. (laughs) Yeah. He had that famous line. I picture my epitaph. Here lies Paul Newman who died a failure because his eyes turned brown. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the sunglasses came about because he said, I really have no tolerance for light. Uh, there's an accumulation of Budweiser, as well as damage from my early days making movies, when the slower film exposures often required an actor to keep looking straight into an arc light. And in fact, Conrad Hall, in an interview, talks about that's how they got the shot of the baby blues that, that the cigar-chopping <laughs> executive mandated. He was like, I just put an arc light in front of him and blasted him with it. <laughs> so, good job, Warner Brothers. You gave Paul Newman lasting eye damage. <laughs> Is that new documentary that Ethan Hawke did on him any good, by the way? Last Movie Star. 
Is it good? I've I heard it's it. good. I bear no quarrel to Ethan Hawke, starring in the aforementioned Gattaca. Uh, <laughs> Paul Newman's brother Arthur was hired as the unit production manager, and despite maybe being a bit of a nepotism hire, he actually admirably really busted his ass making this. They visited the Tavares camp in Florida, uh, shot a bunch of pictures as references, and then subsequently constructed a dozen buildings for the set of this movie, which was filmed in Stockton, California, including a barracks, mess hall, warden's quarters, guard shack, dog kennels, and then they brought in Spanish moss from Louisiana to uh, to dress all of this stuff in. And the effect was so convincing that a San Joaquin County building inspector drove past the set, thought it was a migrant workers complex, and subsequently posted a bunch of condemned notices all over it for not being up to code. The opening scene of Luke cutting the tops off the parking meters was filmed in Lodi, California. Uh, or Lodi? I have no idea. I assume it's Lodi, but in um, the Creedence Clearwater Revival song of the same name, he says, uh, doesn't he say stuck in Lodi again? Ooh, I'm stuck in Lodi again. I'm keeping all this just because I want to hear you do your Fogarty impression. <laughs> that God, and Axel. Can you well, do I, Fogarty I was working... and Axel duetting? <laughs> it's just a bunch of dudes going, <laughs> just out of their nose for 40, 40 minutes at a clip. I had, I actually had worked on the, um, the drag line where he goes, uh, Oh, Lord, whatever I've done, don't strike me blind <laughs> for another couple of few minutes. Oh, man. I love George Kennedy. I love that. We'll get it to him in a second. Um, the city took its sweet time replacing those meters. Apparently, for a few years after the filming was wrapped, you could go there and just see this block-long row of headless parking meters. I hope they put a plaque in. It was like, oh, like in like so. the, the Rocky Steps in Philly. Yeah. <laughs> um... That is changed from the novel. Uh, in the novel, Luke purposely crashed his car into a diner to steal money, which might have been Donald Pierce's second choice <laughs> of his real-life caper, I mean. Uh, Rosenberg said, I thought an awful lot of businessmen wouldn't find that very heroic, and so he changed it for the film. Yeah, Luke says in the movie that they cut the heads off parking meters because he was settling an old score. And the idea was that this crime would endear him to the audience because nobody <laughs> likes parking meters and probably wish they had the guts to do the same thing. Uh, and it also endeared him to the gang in the prison camp who were weirdly impressed by the randomness and even pointlessness of this crime, which I like. I mean, there's just so much. This movie is also a really great example of like the iceberg rule you know there's so much of it that's just hinted at and like the iceberg being like you only see 10 percent of the iceberg and so you know if you're in writing it's the idea of like you just kind of hint at stuff and you can leave a lot unsaid and open to interpretation i mean it's just I, I, it's mentioned that he's a war hero and he has all of these medals and stuff but what does settling an old score against parking meters mean is that you know he got a lot of tickets once or you just mean generally against like the machinery of bureaucracy and, and city hall and stuff. It's also, you know, this movie opens, it doesn't even open with Paul Newman. It opens with the giant word violation on yeah. the parking meter, which is just again on the nose, but very efficient. Well, then the end of the movie, when he's dead in the back of the car, you can see the red light from the stoplight up ahead and then it turns to green, and the movie opens yes. with the red to green, or green to red, I should say. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, man. I, didn't, I don't think I picked of, up on that. That's so good. It's supposed to be just, like, symbolic of, like, you know, being told what to do, essentially. 
great filmmaking. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back with more Too Much Information in just a moment. Today, I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm JB Smooth, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at slash hypergig for details. Snag a job is where America goes to hire. With the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Today, more than ever, we're all looking for ways to save, especially on medical bills. But where do you start? Unless you're a medical billing expert, finding savings can seem impossible. And who has the time? HealthLock can help. HealthLock is a healthcare technology company that securely connects with your family's insurance and reviews your medical claims as they come in from your healthcare providers. Then, HealthLock's technology flags and alerts you to any errors like overbilling, wrong codes, and fraud to help you and your family save. You can even have HealthLock work on your behalf to get money back from select past bills. To date, HealthLock has helped its members save more than $130 million. Saving on medical bills starts with knowing where to look. HealthLock makes it easy to find and fix hidden medical bill errors. To save, visit HealthLock.com. Do it today before you see another healthcare provider. George Kennedy, who, as I mentioned earlier, won an Oscar for his role as Dragline, lauded the production's worth in his memoir, Trust Me. The original in Florida, he said, was old. The sideboards warped. The beams aged. It was all duplicated exactly. He's talking he about the prison camp. Yes. He was talking about Dennis Hopper. Um, <laughs> <laughs> if you didn't know otherwise, you would have bet hard cash it had been there 50 years or more. All that said, though, some of this movie was shot in Florida. The scene in which Luke is chased by bloodhounds and some of the other exteriors were shot at Callahan Road Prison near Jacksonville, according to the Florida Department of Corrections website. Um, It was a stuntman playing Luke, but those were real Department of Corrections dogs chasing after him. That's terrifying. Can you imagine getting that call? Oh, God, what does the call sheet say? Oh, I'm being chased by Florida DOC dogs. The film is famous for its ensemble cast, which includes Dennis Hopper, Harry Dean Stanton, and, as you mentioned, Trapper John. Oh, yeah, Wayne uh, Wayne Roberts. Their camaraderie really comes across, and it was hard-won and real. 
Uh, they all stayed in the local Holiday Inn together. They rode to the set each day in the backs of the trucks that were used on the film. I read that they would play poker games on the set and screw around, and this would occasionally disrupt filming, but the director let it go because he wanted that sense of camaraderie and rebellion yeah. to come through in the movie. I, I put this later on, but now's a good time to mention it. They also banned wives and girlfriends from the set because <laughs> he wanted them to all be convincingly man-musk-drenched, sexually frustrated maladroits at least one source i was not able to verify this but at least one source claims that they actually tarred a stretch of highway in stockton for it can we get iheart to like adopt that section of the highway the george kennedy memorial cool hand luke <laughs> driveway all all hyphenated it's like the side is like 40 feet long the failure to communicate strother martin memorial highway newman's own blacktop yeah <laughs> <laughs> That's good. That should be the next thing they experiment, they push into. Newman's own road tar. <laughs> Rosenberg actually had the ball practice with machetes and shovels in the studio backyard for the labor scenes because he thought some of them were not convincingly uh, convict-like in their motions. Um, Jack Lemon was initially considered for the role of Luke because it was his production company. That would have been terrible. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Took himself out of consideration. Good move, Jack. They also considered Telly Savalas, Kojak. Telly was in the UK filming The Dirty Dozen with George Kennedy, but apparently Telly Savalas was afraid to fly, and they did not want to delay production enough for him to get back into the States by boat. George Kennedy got his ass on a plane. <laughs> and like a that's winner. And that's why he won the Oscar. Uh, did you ever hear that that Skinnerd song? Uh, this, the bit about, there's a drive-by truckers song called Get Your Ass on the Plane. That is supposedly, I think, what the Leonard Skinner road manager says said to them, or said to one of them. Whoa, I haven't heard this. I did a whole thing on the the Leonard Skinner plane crash for the, I guess it would have been the 40th anniversary. I forget who it was, but one of the survivors of the wreck, Artemis like, Pyle, like, oh yeah, right, dragged himself through the the Everglades and forever, was shot and was shot at because he. Uh, I mean, to be fair, that must have looked like something out of Texas Chainsaw Massacre. This dude in like long stringy hair, covered in blood, like yeah. emerging from the, the swamp. Yeah. How, what is this? Is this from? Maybe I'm making this up. That sounds familiar, though. Someone was like, they were like, oh, I got a bad feeling about this, and the tour manager or something was like, get your ass on the plane. Okay, finally got that thing. Moving on. Paul Newman read the book and committed himself to the project before there was even a script finalized, saying it would have worked no matter how many mistakes were made. Great line. Uh, Luke was from West Virginia, so Newman contacted Peace Corps founder Sergeant Shriver, who he knew through uh, his activism with the Democratic Party, to find him a guide through West Virginia to pick up on the accent and mannerisms. Shriver got Newman in touch with a businessman in Huntington, West Virginia, named Andy Huvoras, but guide or no guide, Paul Newman was recognized basically everywhere he went, obviously, except at a Catholic school where a nun shook his hand and said, nice to meet you, Mr. Newman. What do you do for a living? <laughs> that, is, that is a charming story, but I don't actually really remember being especially blown away by his accent in this. No, it's not like method level. It's yeah, just kind of no. general... Do you ever see that David Cross bit where he's like, uh, talks about the redneck accent that's common everywhere in the world <laughs> or everywhere in the States? No, nah, man, I'm from Butte, Montana. No, nah, man, I'm from uh, Corpus Christi, Texas. No, nah, man, I'm from Hunton, West Virginia. It's just like, 
just a common accent. Uh, anyway, one cast member who didn't have a good time on the set of this or <laughs> agree with Newman's casting was Don Pierce, who is credited as the film's technical advisor, has a bit part in it, is one of the one of the men. I love uh, that they he, at least worked in like the author of the book to they appear. They really tried, movie. man, and he not, just yeah, yeah. He sort of bit the hand that fed him. Yeah, Yeah, he really did. Uh, He said he felt out of place in Hollywood as an ex-con. He said felt kind of condescended to and felt like an odd man out. And he got in a fight (laughs) on on his last day on set and punched someone else who I was not able to find out who. uh, But he was subsequently... Probably Newman. (laughs) The fact that it was so hush-hush, like maybe they tried to suppress that. He was uh, subsequently disinvited from the film's premiere. Perhaps. Yeah, you wouldn't get disinvited if you just like if you hit like Trapper John. You would <laughs> Hell, you'd be encouraged if you knocked out yeah. Hopper. <laughs> like take a swing on him. Everyone does. <laughs> um, man, I forgot about that dude in there with like the horrific uh scar. Like, s- scar. Yeah, and then there's that great throwaway line where he's like, How'd you get that scar? And he's like, What scar? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, Pierce consistently derided both the finished film and Newman, saying variously that he was too cute and too scrawny to play a convincing prison camp inmate. He would never have lasted in the role, he said, or in the camp. I seem to be the only guy in the United States who doesn't like the movie, he said in 1989. They screwed it up 99 different ways. <laughs> Yeah, we talked about this during the Never Ending Story episode where we did a sidebar on authors who hate the film adaptation of their movie. Uh, he's quoted as saying, they did a lousy job and I disliked it intensely. He's talking to the Telegraph. Newman, he wouldn't have lasted five minutes on the road. Uh, we mentioned earlier, Pierce got a small part in the movie, The Convict Sailor. Uh, hmm. And I guess he tried to like have a conversation with Paul Newman on the set, get some kind of relationship going. Don Pierce claims that Paul Newman even asked him to dinner, but then canceled. This is Pierce talking when his PR people realized that he didn't need to be seen eating with an ex con. I didn't like the guy. I didn't like the whole Hollywood crowd. I was never made welcome. And so he punched someone. <laughs> um, going off on unnecessary tangent here, boss. Um, going off unnecessary tangent there, Jordan. Uh, <laughs> Speaking of background parts, did you know that Ron Howard's dad, Rance Howard, appeared as an in an uncredited role in this movie as the sheriff? I did not. Yeah, he's in there too. Huh. Yeah, so we've got, uh, that's it actually, that's all I have to say about that. <laughs> Dennis Hopper invited a buddy, the San Francisco avant-garde filmmaker Bruce Connor, to the set one day. Uh, who shot footage of the actors uh, clearing brush on the roadside and turned it into a slow motion 17 minute short film called Luke. <laughs> because this was back in the day when you could be an experimental filmmaker just coasting on that kind of half ass garbage because everyone was super stoned and on LSD. Yeah, this was the era when Andy Warhol made Empire, which was just he turned the camera on and pointed it at the Empire State Building for eight hours and five minutes. Wasn't Hopper involved in the monkeys, the monkeys thing? Was he in head? I know that Nicholson was. Yeah, they both were. What did Hopper do for the Monkees movie? He's in a non-speaking part. Whoa, I I forgot about that. Wow. Yeah, because I know Nicholson, I think, didn't he co-write it? Jack Nicholson did? And Um, then he went on to be an easy writer because he was involved with Hopper and and that whole crowd. Yeah, they they really just, all the Monkees and Jack Nicholson brainstormed into a tape recorder. Yep. Love to hear that tape. God, things were just so much easier back then. <laughs> <laughs> Betty Davis turned down the role of Luke's mom, which went to Joe Van Fleet. 
is only 10 or 11 years older than Newman when this was filmed. Uh, they only had a day to shoot that scene together, which was eight pages long in the script, which uh, that's ambitious. Supposedly, I think this is in George Kennedy's autobiography, uh, Van Fleet arrived and she sat on a tree stump uh, 200 yards from everyone else, pouring over the script and going over her lines. And then she asked Harry Dean Stanton to sing to her before her take, which moved her to tears. Harry Dean Stanton does his own playing and singing in that movie, and he got to keep the guitar that he played in the film, which I love. Uh, on-set legend has it that Morgan Woodward, the Western star who plays the man with no eyes, the guy in the aviator shades, kept the sunglasses on whenever he was on set and didn't speak to anyone. Just I've always wondered, is the in um, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou, the guy that um, Daniel Von Bargen plays, the guy with the sunglasses, is he supposed to be a man with no eyes? He's got to be. He's got to yeah. be, yeah. Okay, now we must arrive at the car, the class, let's call it a classic, the car washing scene, in which a statuesque woman, <laughs> played by uh, Joy Harmon, uh, suggestively washes a 1941 DeSoto within view of the inmates. Harmon was 27 when her manager got her an audition with Rosenberg and Newman, for which she didn't speak a line and just stood in front of them in a bikini. <laughs> Uh, supposedly during this audition, Newman marveled at how blue her eyes were, to which I say, smooth of you, Paul. What a charmer. <laughs> uh, she later ran a bakery called Aunt Joy's Cakes in Burbank, California, which I think is adorable. There's a documentary on her life because she had been in like these other exploitation films. There's a movie about her life called uh, or a short about her life called From Cheesecake to Cheesecakes. <laughs> It's so good. Uh, I guess in the early 60s, she was on a show with Groucho Marx, and she got into this habit of baking things the night before and bringing it onto the set, and Groucho loved it. She would just make these desserts for the cast and crew, and that's how she developed her uh, her baking abilities. I love that. It's like it's yeah. like the porn star who had the bit part in Cruel Intention. She came in with copies of her DVDs <laughs> to give out to the grips and stuff. I just think that's great. Um, yeah, she told Entertainment Weekly that she uh, didn't get it <laughs> she said i was just washing a car to my best ability and having fun with it with the sponge and everything i was not aware that there were two meanings to things that i was doing and i'm s still not really that much aware of what they all were to which i say boffo <laughs> i get i guess i don't even know how to use, how to use that word no, that's not true. I mean, Rosenberg, like, he actually choreographed. She might not have been aware, but but Rosenberg choreographed that scene. He's talked about being like, okay, like, drink from the hose, and now we're going to do this, and now we're going to do that. So, I mean, God love her. She was nervous when she arrived in Stockton to shoot the scene, and as was the fashion at the time, producers suggested that she smoke some pot to calm down. She said, uh, this is to Entertainment Weekly, I was so upset, I called my dad, and he said, you just come on home. Don't do the movie. I told Mr. Rosenberg I was going home, and then they came to the room, and he brought me flowers and chocolate. He said, don't worry about it. We're not doing marijuana. You don't need it. And it worked out fine. <laughs> We're Wasn't... not doing marijuana. <laughs> There's another quote from her that makes me a little sad, though. She says, I just figured I was washing the car. I've always been naive and innocent. I was mm. acting and not trying to be sexy. Maybe that's why the scene played so well. After seeing it at the premiere, I was a bit embarrassed. Oh. I don't like that. Um, I'd also very much like to add, speaking of the monkeys, that she was also in two episodes of the monkeys that same year she made Cool Hand Luke in 1967. Oh. 
Uh, we mentioned earlier that Rosenberg had barred the cast's wives and girlfriends from the set to get them in the proper mindset. And Harmon was actually staying in a different hotel, and her name was even kept off the call sheet for the day. So they were really, like, appropriately bowled over by her presence. Um, there is a <laughs> really funny interview with George Kennedy where he, <laughs> he describes her as round. <laughs> The roundest girl I think I've... Goyle. I can't do his full thing. Round. The roundest girl I think I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> he says somewhere in Warner Brothers is about 40 million feet of film of a girl washing a car that never appeared anywhere. <laughs> but despite them being bowled over by her, they are not actually reacting. Those shots in the films are not actually reacting to that happen in real time. They filmed her part, not on a closed set, but uh, apart from them. And then for the reverse shots... Um, they were tasked with reacting to, uh, I guess Rosenberg brought on like a teenage cheerleader, but it was freezing the day that they shot all those reverse shots. So she was in a full length overcoat. So <laughs> all the guys who are like falling over themselves with lust reacting to that scene are looking at a teenager in a full overcoat off in the distance. Um, all of them are freezing. Yeah. George Kennedy said it took a lot of imagination. Uh, I love him so much. I love Naked Gun. He's great Naked Gun. I also love his last film role is in the, um, for completest horror dorks among you. I believe he is in Creepshow 2. Uh, in his autobiography, he reveals that the actor Aldo Ray was also up for the role of Dragline. No idea who that is. No, no idea. Yeah. Uh, after Kennedy auditioned with Rosenberg, he muttered something about wishing that he'd had more time to prepare, uh, to which the director said, you're going to have all the time you need because he, he got the role. Oh, adorable. Yeah. And the director, Stuart Rosenberg, said, What I was looking for was a big, lovable bear because he had to be big enough to boss the likes of Newman. Well, Newman seems like kind of a small guy, though. Yeah, he's built like a brick house, though. I'll tell you much. How did that dude drink a case of beer at dinner and still have those abs? Uh, they took three days to film that fight scene, partially because it was filmed in the blinding, scorching sun, and I don't think they could really tell what they were doing, and partially because Newman needed that much time to recover from constantly flinging himself onto the ground. This Chevy Chase would learn doing all those pratfalls on SNL. He screwed up his back. Uh, there's something cool about the cinematography of this film, and especially about the boxing scene specifically. A cinematographer, Conrad Hall, would frequently shoot straight into the sun in order to show the heat taking its toll on the That's chain that. gang by getting these sun flares. <laughs> that Panavision, baby. I love the look of all of this stuff, man. I mean, just that it's like my favorite. I love this in like the spaghetti western stuff, but just those big wide shot things, man. Uh... Let me get your read on the famous climax of the film. What do you, what do you, what do you, well, no, let me, let me, all right, shut the f up for a second, Jordan. You've been talking too damn much. There's a famous scene in the church, the film's climax, in which, spoilers, Dragline comes to an escaped Luke in the church, which I've never really understood the timeline of that because he's like, okay, Luke, let's split up. And then five minutes later, he runs into the church, but I guess he was caught immediately afterwards. Uh, he tries to convince Luke to give himself up back to the prison guards saying that, uh, you know, they'll take it easy on us. And considering this film is remarkably unsubtle about the uh, Luke being Jesus thing, uh, that would make Dragline in this moment Judas. Although Kennedy and Newman apparently disagreed about that. Uh, talking to Roger Ebert in 1968, George Kennedy said, on one hand, you get the Judas theory, which is Paul Newman's theory. On the other hand, you get the stupid idiot theory, which is mine. <laughs> God love him. According to Paul, 
Dragline figured the end was in sight and maybe it would help if he betrayed Luke. I don't agree with that. I think Dragline was sincere but stupid. He thought he was helping Luke. He was an unwitting Judas, I guess. Anyway, Luke really had no place to escape too. It was all over anyway. I go with that. To? I go with George Kennedy's explanation yeah. that he really thought that they were going to go easy on him. Yeah. Just a big God's perfect idiot. <laughs> well, should, should, should we just sum up for the folks that maybe haven't seen this movie in a while, like how we got to this point? Luke makes a break for it with Dragline, basically, with George Kennedy's well, character. This is what I love about this performance, man. It's like the second time he's escaped. The, the last time Luke escapes, he does so by commandeering a truck. He just hops in the, he's, he plays this whole thing where he's been extremely like beaten down and his spirit's been broken. And then he drives off in one of the trucks and Dragline jumps in the passenger seat. And he later says like, I just got so carried away seeing you escape. Like I only had a couple years left on my sentence and now I'm going to be, you know, boned basically. And he plays that regret so well that it's like dawning on him, like, I really shouldn't have. I've made a huge mistake. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Yeah, great performance. Like I said, he won Best Sporting Actor for it. He was so worried about the stiff competition he was facing that year from John Cassavetes in Dirty Dozen, Gene Hackman in Bonnie and Clyde, someone named Cecil Kellaway for Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, and Michael J. Pollard also in Bonnie and Clyde. Oh, yeah. So George Kennedy spent five grand on ads in the trades to tout his performance. And he won, and it worked. Bet on yourself. He said his salary, he said it was worth it because his salary multiplied by a factor of 10 after he won. The ad's great. It's a still from the movie with Dragline carrying Luke over his shoulder, I think after the boxing scene. And just the copy on it was George Kennedy supporting. <laughs> That's I love that. Good, right? Yeah, that great? Oh, man. He was the oldest living winner of the uh, Best Supporting Actor Oscar at the time. How old um, is he? 164. <laughs> Now, he's one of those dudes who just, like, he was six, and then he was 40. <laughs> With no interim. He looks like 53, I'd say, and cool hand But he's, he's weathered, you know? Yeah. Yeah, man, I just love him so much. He's, 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 if you just look up those interviews, he's, he's all like, he's just, yeah, he's so sweet. He said, he, they talked about, uh, there's an interview that he talks about that night, and he says, uh. He said it felt like he was punched in the stomach because he arrived at the Oscars just prepared to applaud somebody else or just exist through the evening. <laughs> yeah, he apparently didn't even prepare a speech, which, you know, they all say that, but That's I true. believe it with him. Yeah. Uh, when EW tracked George Kennedy down for an interview after Paul Newman died in 2008, uh, they found him, quote, living a quieter existence with no reps and no listed phone number. Apparently in the outskirts of Boise, Idaho. I love that. As you meditate on that, we'll be right back with more Too Much Information after these messages. Today I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm J.B. Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at slash hypergig for details. Snag a job is where America goes to hire. With the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. 
With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snagajob is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, temp to hire, part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Today, more than ever, we're all looking for ways to save, especially on medical bills. But where do you start? Unless you're a medical billing expert, finding savings can seem impossible. And who has the time? HealthLock can help. HealthLock is a healthcare technology company that securely connects with your family's insurance and reviews your medical claims as they come in from your healthcare providers. Then, HealthLock's technology flags and alerts you to any errors like overbilling, wrong codes, and fraud to help you and your family save. You can even have HealthLock work on your behalf to get money back from select past bills. To date, HealthLock has helped its members save more than $130 million. Saving on medical bills starts with knowing where to look. HealthLock makes it easy to find and fix hidden medical bill errors. To save, visit HealthLock.com. Do it today before you see another healthcare provider. We have arrived at the Paul Newman rules portion of the program. George Kennedy has nothing but good things to say about him in his autobiography. He wrote that Newman pulled no star power strings, calling him a worker bee. You can't even imagine him being unprepared. He said Newman was no sissy, explaining that the only complaint he ever heard him utter while shooting this was after a long day of shooting in the box, after which he said, I don't know how a man could live a whole day in that thing. Understandable. Fair it was thing torture. To say. It was torture. Uh, He would fly back to Hollywood on weekends occasionally, but he enjoyed shooting in Stockton and would tool around in his car or his motorcycle. Uh, And despite being a big star, a huge star at the time, actor Ralph Waite, who played Alibi, said in a 2008 interview that uh, Newman kept with cold beers in the trunk of his car and would just (laughs) pop it open and hand out beers to all the the crews. Uh, I was not able to find this initial interview. I would have to buy it on eBay. I am so upset. But apparently, in 1968, he gave an interview to Playboy in which he said he perfected his salad on set. Chopped up hearts of celery, a little olive oil, a little cold water, some wine vinegar, and a lot of salt and pepper. It's justifiably famous. (laughs) Speaking of justifiably famous food things, the film's arguably most famous scene is the one in which Luke triumphs in a wager as to whether or not he can eat 50 eggs in an hour without puking. Consequently, Kennedy and Newman were constantly asked about it. At one point, Paul Newman told an interviewer, I never swallowed an egg. And when the interviewer responded, isn't method acting about doing the real thing? He quipped, not if you have to swallow eggs. (laughs) Asked about this scene in another interview, Newman unprompted brought up Henry Fonda. He said, now Henry Fonda, he was the best film eater of all time. He would have a garbage can next to the table during an eating scene. Then he'd pack his cheeks just like a squirrel, never swallowing a bite, and use the same food for eight, 
10, 20 shots. So there you have it, folks. Uh, yeah, wasn't he in the Grapes of Wrath and the Depression era? <laughs> just to say, oh, just... don't waste a mouthful of food. <laughs> Spit it out, eat it again, and again. You take, you take that, you take that bone home. You got a baby. You got a stew going. <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh, George Kennedy has repeatedly provided the most detailed summary of the fifty eggs scene. He said there were garbage cans just out of camera range. He wrote in his autobiography. Trust me. My guess is that Paul Newman consumed no more than eight or so eggs because as soon as the director yelled "cut," he would relieve his mouth and throat of everything he could. And Kennedy Gosh. added that Newman, quote, had the muscle control to pop up his belly on command. Depending on what stage of the egg count he was at, he'd blow it up accordingly. Near the end of the 50 eggs, you'd have sworn that he had a musk melon in there. That's a great, <laughs> great turn of phrase. You'd have sworn he had a musk melon in there. Nope. But still, you didn't want to be near him when he belched. George Kennedy. But he's a musk melon. I, yeah, I gotta look. I, Jordan, uh, pull out uh, Jamie, Jamie, put some muskmelon. <laughs> pull oh, the musk a cantaloupe. Oh, all right. That's fine. Uh, moving on. <laughs> that scene took three days to shoot. Can you imagine how disgusting that must have been? A bunch of greasy, sweaty men stuffed full of eggs. Ugh. <laughs> on the first day, George Kennedy wrote, we ate as many of the eggs as we could get our hands on. The property department had to hard-boil 200 or so more that night on the soundstage. On day two, the smell of day-old hard-boiled eggs permeated everything. Between shots, we all ran for the exits and didn't come back inside until we'd stuffed tissues up our nostrils. Uh, this is hilarious because Newman once told a guest on the set one day early in the production, there's a good smell about this. We're going to have a good picture. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> the words would come back to haunt him. Yes. Uh, incidentally, our boys in Jackass attempted to do their own version of this in their inaugural season. The contestants were Preston Lacey, Chris Neratko, and Stephanie Hodge. Stephanie tapped out of it after nine eggs, having thrown up after eating just three. Just three? Does she hate eggs? Does she have an allergy? I guess, man. I guess. Uh, spoilers. I did not watch this, but they all throw up a lot. Chris throws up after eating eight eggs just 10 minutes into the contest preston makes it to 16 eggs but he eventually throws up after 21 uh he taps out at 30 eggs which is really impressive uh johnny knoxville who is the referee at this point force feeds chris up to 39 eggs and making him win supposedly after the popularity of cool hand luke similar egg eating contests popped up on college campuses and among troops stationed in Vietnam. What are people trying to get out of the draft would eat 50 eggs before they're physical? <laughs> I, you I just, know, uh, that's so many damn eggs. Well, why? It seemed like a nice round number. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I guess I never really thought about it, but I just don't think about eggs as being that tough on a person to consume. I mean, I'm thinking of Joey Chestnut eating 63 hot dogs with sure. buns in 10 minutes for the Nathan's hot dog eating contest. I think that's the record. So I don't know. Eggs yeah. don't seem like that big a deal, but I mean, is it because the yolk is all dry and powdery? Maybe it makes yeah. it hard. To and like... they're dense and they're dense. And if you're not like salting it or anything, that's just like a lot of protein to choke down. God, can you imagine the dump Paul Newman took? <laughs> Just <laughs> moving on. 
Another tremendous scene in the film is after the death of his mother. <laughs> the whole spectrum of the human emotion in this film. From the, the triumph to the agony. The agony and the ecstasy of Boy and Luke. Oh, man. Uh, yeah, he sits on the bunk and plays the banjo that she gave him and sings Plastic Jesus. The shooting script, we'll get into this music from this a little bit later on. The shooting script didn't specify that this was the song. Um, they only there's and there's a long band apparently a very long description of Luke playing and singing banjo in the book, but it doesn't say that it's like a mournful song or anything. Um, in the shooting script, it says that he would sing an unspecified slow hymn. Rosenberg heard somebody on the set singing "Plastic Jesus." And he was like, "Oh, I like that song," and it gave Warner Brothers a huge headache. We'll talk about that in a second. Unlike Harry Dean Stanton, who has a delightful singing voice. Uh, you should really Google his performance of some of these Mexican border ballads that he can sing. They're really amazing. Just like Harry Dean Stanton singing in Spanish about oh. um, being alone and far from home. Made me cry once. Um, George Kennedy told Entertainment Weekly that Paul knew as much about playing a banjo as I know about making cakes, which means very, very little. But he still insisted on playing it himself in the scene. And he took lessons from a guy named Dave Sear, who was a regular at Washington Square Park Hootenannies in New York at the time. But that pushed the shooting of the scene back for weeks while Newman practiced. In the scene that you see in the film, and then this is in the film Finals Cut, Paul makes an error, George Kennedy told Entertainment Weekly. He wasn't doing it the way he wanted, he became madder and madder, although you can only tell by the increase of the pace in his picking the banjo. When it was over, it was magnificent. Rosenberg said, print. Paul said, I could do it better. And Rosenberg said, nobody can do it better. Yeah, I always thought that he was speeding it up because his emotion was rising and he was just trying to stuff it down by playing the song. I thought it was a great way that the performance came off. God, I love that scene. I mean, it's it's so... And they just, again, they made the right choice, man. I Like, if they'd been playing some hymn, it would have been so on the nose. And just the fact he's playing this little irreverent song and... Oh, yeah. So perfect. I mean, it's like, it, it's either right before or right after. I forget which. I think it's right before. He does the whole scene where he goes out in the rain and kind of taunts God to, to strike him down if he's really up there. You know, love me, hate me, kill me. You know, just give me some just sign. Just give me an answer. There. Uh, yeah. So it keeps with his whole you know, reverent personality. Yeah. Um, they had tried to shoot this twice before, took hours, and this was ultimately shot on the second to last day of shooting at Warner Brothers. This is the banjo scene? Yeah, the banjo scene. And George Kennedy said that Newman and Rosenberg had gotten into a shouting match on set over this whole Paul wanting to play the banjo for real in the scene. But that was just, just before they filmed that take. So they were literally screaming at each other before they got the final take for that. But there were no hard feelings because Newman starred in four more of Rosenberg's movies, 1970s WSA, 1972's Pocket Money, and The Drowning Pool in 1975, a movie I know nothing about. As I mentioned earlier, the film is emphatically not subtle about its religious themes. Luke collapses in the exact posture of the crucifixion down to the crossed feet uh, after he wins the egg contest. The film ends with a crossroads Shape of the cross superimposed over the photo, which has itself been torn in the shape of a cross. Um, but this is a little more subtle, little nod here. Luke's prison number is 37. And if you happen to look up the gospel of Luke in the Bible, chapter one, verse 37 says, for with God, nothing shall be impossible. So that's cute. Ironically, given that uh, Pearson did all this hard uh, on the nose religious stuff in the screenplay, 
In the book, Luke's father is mentioned to be a crooked evangelical preacher. Hmm. Uh, the music, in a header I like to call Schifrin into high gear. Iconic composer Lalo Schifrin turned in a score to Cool Hand Luke, and one of the most famous bits about it is that the musical cue from when they're tar in the road was used for news cues, like intro to news programs for years afterwards. I do recognize uh, in, that, yeah. It's in 6-4 uh, for all of you dorks out there. Uh, most notably on ABC's owned and operated stations because it sounded like a telegraph, essentially. Um, I'm getting much of this from a tremendous piece by a guy named James M. During from the August 2017 issue of the Journal of the Society of American Music. Cool Hand Luke was in production at the same time as The Graduate, right? And production's initial plan was to do what The Graduate had done with Simon and Garfunkel and enlist a contemporary folk artist to record an original song for Cool Hand Luke that they hoped would sweep the nation. They arrived at Gordon Lightfoot. <laughs> Gordon Lightfoot, ladies and gentlemen. Um, Did he have any big songs in that era? I know. I don't know. You know I brought Fitzgerald it up with was mid seventies. Yeah. I guess he he apparently had something of a live. His biggest hit was just his cover of Dylan. In 65, just like Tom Thumbs Blues. Biggest hit to date or biggest hit period? When this was made. Oh, okay. This is a fun, you know, fun. <laughs> Jesus, go ahead. Unnecessary tangent about Gordon Lightfoot here, boss. <laughs> <laughs> to kick off Canada's centennial year, the CBC commissioned Gordon Lightfoot to write the Canadian Railroad Trilogy for a broadcast in 67. Sure. Whatever. Anyway... So did Warner Brothers. They got Gordon Lightfoot, who uh, delivered this song called Too Much to Lose in fall of 66. You can hear this out there. It's not people. Not a lot of people know this, uh, that he wrote this song because it's not really mentioned that much. But his demo for it is out here on YouTube. Not very good. And uh, Warner Brothers agreed because soon after shooting began in 1966, they decided they weren't going to use that anymore. And then... Always a bridesmaid, never a bride, poor Gordon. Uh, the same thing happened again with a song called Don Quixote. He wrote for a Michael Douglas movie called Hail Hero. Also wrote a spec song for that. Also did not get picked up. So, Lalo Schifrin talks to Stuart Rosenberg. He says, you have three choices with the movie here. One is you hire a folk musician or somebody who can play bluegrass. Two is you can go to this big Americana, Aaron Copeland, Appalachian fanfare, common man, etc. But I propose a third possibility which is a combination of both. And so what Rosenberg did is he picked out a bunch of these traditional songs that he wanted, and they do use some of them. They use Just a Closer Walk with Thee. There's another one that Harry Dean Stanton sings that I can't remember. at the. But um, basically, Warner Brothers went to start clearing these songs, and they told him that it was going to be almost impossible because this is at the height of the folk boom. So there's just dozens of versions of these songs circulating, and unless you found the first version that was in the public domain, if you licensed somebody's version that had their lyrics in it, that counted as an original arrangement. You had to pay them more money. So Rosenberg settled on Plastic Jesus, as I mentioned again. It took months for Warner Brothers to find this who actually did that song because there were three different versions of it out there. And Jordan, do you know this band? Do you know the Gold Coast Singers? You know, I don't. Plastic Jesus originally appeared on the 1962 comedy album, Here They Are, by the Gold Coast Singers, where it appeared as part of a skit that they had about a radio evangelist. Lalo Schifrin was from Argentina, and he had worked extensively in jazz. He worked with Dizzy Gillespie. He studied with the famed composer Oliver Messiaen at the Paris Conservatory. But 
This pedigree did not make him particularly well-suited to incorporating American folk and blues idioms into the film, but he did visit the, the set, and he put in some research to uh, try and find suitable banjoists for the soundtrack, and he wanted Earl Scruggs for the job, which is kind of like being, I want somebody to play basketball in my movie. Is Michael Jordan busy? <laughs> Um, Scruggs invented a style of banjo picking that is one of the two that people play. You either play claw hammer or you play Scruggs style. Probably the most famous banjo player in the world at the time. So did not do the film, needless to say. So they went with another Washington Square Park folky guy uh, named Art Rosenbaum, who would not meet Lalo Schifrin until a week before they were supposed to record all this in 67. But funnily enough, there's an instrumental version of Plastic Jesus that plays during Luke the first time he's in the box. And that's not played by Rosenbaum. That's played by a wrecking crew guy. And they don't know who it is. It's either Tommy Tedesco or Howard Roberts, um, who are these, you know, members of the L.A. session crew, the wrecking crew. Um, And that was because Rosenbaum couldn't read sheet music, which might have been a bit of a stumbling block to be on the soundtrack of a major motion picture. But when they got to the actual sessions, Schifrin just said, don't worry. When I tell you to start playing, you start playing. And when I tell you to stop, you stop. Because this guy was a self-taught banjo player. He learned off like recordings and stuff. So they just kind of had him, you know, free banjo. Um, And this is uh, Rosenberg and Schifrin would continue to work together, including on that WUSA film that I know nothing about. Voyage of the Damned in 76, the Amityville Horror in 79, and another prison film, Brubaker. In 1980. All right, let's f-ing take this home. <laughs> got, where'd the road go? We got one more mile of tarred road to get to. Cool Hand Luke opened on Halloween 1967 at Lowe's State Theater, a premiere whose proceeds went to charities. I love that. Aww. It was an immediate commercial and critical success. As I mentioned earlier, it still has a 100% rating at Rotten Tomatoes, That's which is bananas. Insane. Perfect film. No notes. Oddly enough, Dissenting voices on the film include Newman's biographer, Lawrence J. Quirk. Stupid name. Bad Cool Hand Luke taste. F*** you, Lawrence J. Quirk. Writes, For once, even Newman's famed charisma fails him. For in Cool Hand Luke, he completely lacks the charm that, say, Al Pacino in Scarecrow effortlessly exhibits. I put the question mark in there because nobody remembers that film. No. Al Pacino and Gene Hackman? Nobody, I give, find me one person who remembers Scarecrow, Lawrence J. Quirk, idiot, dullard, fool. There was a uh, contemporary, there, oh, this is a, funny though, there was a contemporary review of the film in Life magazine that criticized it for its beautiful photography and suggested they turned the prison camp into a rest camp in which the men are getting plenty of sleep, food, and healthy outdoor exercise. <laughs> Which they claim showed that there were worse ways to pay one's debt to society. Which, <laughs> sure. <laughs> Quinn Luke was nominated for Best Actor, Best Supporting Actor, Best Adapted Screenplay, and Best Original Score at the Academy Awards. But as we mentioned, only George Kennedy won. A 10-time nominee, good lord, Paul Newman would finally win a statue in 1986 for The Color of Money. The American Film Institute, like everyone, loves Cool Hand Luke. They rated Luke the 30th greatest hero in American cinema, rated the failure to communicate line as one of the 11th best lines in the history of movies, and put the movie at number 71 on their most inspiring list. What is one, Rocky? It's gotta be. League of Their Own? Oh. It's a wonderful life. (laughs) 
And Heiko, tell us what happened in 2005. It was added to the National Film Registry at the Library of Congress. Yes, make it a National Film Registry at the Library of Congress reference here, boss. Uh, (laughs) Outside of awards, the film casts an incredibly long shadow on the list of TV shows and movies that reference or parody Cool Hand Luke. Nope, that's a run-on. Sorry. Uh Uh Uh-oh, wait a minute. That's the run-on, please. (laughs) Uh, it's iHeart sending a, a <laughs> comp troller. They're like, you boys gotta tighten this shit up. You get a call in. Outside of awards, the film casts an incredibly long shadow. The list of TV shows and movies that reference or parody Cool Hand Luke on IMDb numbers nearly 300. And just as one example, as early as 1971, sports writers adopted the phrase Cool Hand Luke to describe a particularly gutsy performance by an underdog athlete. I did not know that. Yeah, I didn't either. Yeah. All right. Wrapping this up. It's 11.30 at night, Jordan's time. We just did 23 pages on Freaks and Geeks. In an interview, shortly before Cool Hand Luke went into production, Paul Newman told the New York Times that he was about to play, quote, the ultimate nonconformist and rebel. He's the guy who beats the system. And while the ending of Cool Hand Luke might possibly undercut the latter half of that statement, I don't think he was wrong. Or at the very least, I think he was offering a different interpretation of beating the system and maybe a more realistic and pragmatic one. And that is to live your life in such a way as to outlast and outlive every garbage thing that the world throws at you even if it's just in the hearts and minds of the people slogging through that mud with you. We might not all be natural-born world shakers, but we can at the very least occasionally play a real cool hand. Thank you for listening, folks. This has been Too Much Information. I'm Alex Heigl. And I'm Jordan Runtog. We'll catch you next time. Too Much Information was a production of iHeartRadio. The show's executive producers are Noel Brown and Jordan Runtog. The supervising producer is Mike Johns. The show was researched, written, and hosted by Jordan Runtog and Alex Heigl. With original music by Seth Applebaum and the Ghost Funk Orchestra. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a review. For more podcasts on iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. So, should we go electric? I think we should go electrified with Toyota. Electrified? 
electrified means options. Yes, we could go all electric with a Toyota BZ4X, but then there are hybrids like Grand Highlander, or we could do something in between like a RAV4 plug-in hybrid. So Toyota is electrified diversified? Yup, and with more options for reducing carbon emissions, the closer we all get to Toyota's Beyond Zero vision for the future. Exactly how much coffee have you had this morning? Learn more about our Beyond Zero vision for the future at toyota.com slash beyondzero.